0: Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. morning. We're glad you're here. My name's Robert. I'm the lead pastor. And I want to welcome you. Also want to say to elementary age kiddos, if uh, you'd like to be a part of the class that's that's happening downstairs, you can be dismissed and go uh, with Mr. Charlie here. Cohen's pumped. He's ready to go. Awesome. Awesome. All right, so find a Bible somewhere, okay? There's some under the chairs. There's probably one on your phone. Um, We're going to talk about Deuteronomy 10. You just heard this read. And if you haven't been with us, we've been spending several weeks in the book of Deuteronomy. This is a great day to start fresh because there's a recap, really, of Deuteronomy in Deuteronomy 10. And then we'll talk about what is added to the recap here. But I'm just going to jump right in and uh, read a couple of verses here, and then we'll talk about this recap. So verse 12 of Deuteronomy 10, and if you haven't found Deuteronomy yet, it's the fifth book in the Bible, Old Testament, um, chapter 10. Verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This is a good restatement of all that's gone on before in the first nine chapters, where Moses, being a good preacher, he, he restates what he's already said. He wants to make sure that they hear uh, what's been said. And so he says things like, God wants you to fear Him. That uh, means to, to revere God, to respect God, to have, have awe for God, and that, that internal fear is going to result in walking in His commandments. We might call that uh, obedience. And if we stopped there, we might think God is sort of like, you know, the principal, right? Like we want to f- fear Him or her, and we want to walk in His or her commandments. I know when I was in elementary school, I was really afraid of the principal. His name was Mr. Boney, Okay. Um, good name for a, a principal. And I was scared to death of him. I was a pretty good kid. I, was, I, just, I didn't want to get in trouble. I didn't want to have to go to the office. Uh, and I knew that I'd seen some kids go to the office. And when they came back, they looked very sad and tears were in their eyes. And I just didn't want to go there. I didn't want to be in the office, and then one day I was up on top of the hill in the playground, and I was playing uh, tackle football, which we weren't supposed to be doing, and I had this head-on collision with Ira Wallace, and the result was that Ira had a big uh, goose egg on his forehead, and I had a concussion, all right? So I sort of lost that collision with Ira, and that meant I had to go to the office, okay? And I was scared to death. I didn't want to go to the office, but it turned out that when I got there, Mr. Boney was a nice guy. And he was very concerned about me that I had a concussion and that, you know, he's calling my parents and checking in with me. And, and in fact, God himself is, is not like some, you know, mean guy or, or, or woman that's the principal at, at the, our, our school. He actually, like Mr. Boney, is also very loving, right? And that's the next part, right? He says that he wants us to love him, right? He wants, wants us to love him. And, and you can't coerce love, right? You can't command someone to love if... The person commanding them is not already loving them. And so God, God sets his love on Israel and like a good parent then says, I want you to love me back. This is, a, this is good for them to be loving uh, the most lovely thing in the universe and that that love would then also uh, overflow into some outward actions. And so he doesn't just want us to fear and, and, and obey, love, but also to serve. And so he says, I'm going to serve God. That means there's stuff to do. Stuff to do, not just for God, but with God. Right? This is one of the uh, real joyous moments I think for, for parents is, is when you're serving alongside your kids. You're, you're, you're serving on a mission together. And so he's recapping the the, the 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 things that God expects, the things that he's wanting from his people to, to fear, to obey. To love and to serve. And then all this springs up from the heart. Right? This is this is the, the centermost part of you. This, this is the, the mystical center, the spiritual center, the place from which your mind, your will, your emotions spring up from. And he's saying this is to come from the heart. You love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Right? Uh, heart is mentioned 43 times in Deuteronomy. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. You, you read it in places like Deuteronomy 5, verse 29, where God's just made the covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me and to keep all my commandments. Right? So he he wants this the fear, the love of God, all, all this to come from their very center. Then in the very next chapter, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, after he's given the, the Ten Commandments, all the thou shalt nots, then he gives them a, a thou shall, and thou shall is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. He wants this to come from the heart. So, pretty simple. From a good heart comes good actions, and this is how you're going to fulfill the covenant expectations. And how could you do anything else? Think about verses 14 and 15 in Deuteronomy 10. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are, this day, It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of both the, the transcendence of God, right? Like, He owns everything, both in the seen and the unseen. That's what He's talking about when He says the heaven above the heavens. But this One who owns everything, who is sovereign over all that is seen and unseen, has come down, and He has set His love on the people of Israel. So what else would your heart do? than to love God and fear God, right, with all of your heart. Yet, we know that Israel fails miserably at this. I mean, within 40 days of the covenant that they make at Mount Sinai, they are bowing down to a golden calf and saying to the God that's represented in the calf, you are the God who has brought us out of Egypt. They fail miserably. And so what we want to ask ourselves is what is the root of that problem? What's the remedy to that problem? And what will be the result of a people that have experienced that remedy? Okay, that, that's, that's the outline of the sermon. What's the root of the problem? Both, both that Israel has with their hearts, uh, what's the remedy to that problem with their hearts, and what will be the result the resulting people that will come out of those that have received that remedy. So the root is that really humans have a spiritual heart disease. And that's become apparent throughout Deuteronomy. You hear little little, little blips here and there in Deuteronomy 9.5. Uh, Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, you can hear it where it's like, your heart is not upright, your heart is not righteous. Uh, Deuteronomy eleven sixteen. take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Seems to be this propensity of the heart to be bowing down to other gods and worshiping them. The prophet Jeremiah probably gives the best summation of our problem of, in our heart. Uh, 17, 9 of, of the book of Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick who can understand it this is Israel's problem this is our problem we have a spiritual heart disease we have a propensity to not behold in our heart the the God who's sovereign over everything both seen and unseen to not appreciate the love that God has set on human beings even though he is sovereign over all and the result is we, we, we fail just like Israel. We break promises that, that we made with every good intention, right? When they stood there at Sinai and they said, no, God, we, we will follow you, we will obey these Ten Commandments, and they don't. They break them. Uh, one example, just, just a real obvious example is we see divorce in our country, right? Every 36 seconds, somebody in America has a divorce. We're we're talking 876,000 divorces every year. I'm fairly certain most of those brides and grooms on their wedding days, they made those promises. They weren't thinking, well, I know we're going to get a divorce, right? No, they're thinking, no, we are different. We will stay married. This this is going to be forever, And they spend tens of thousands of dollars to to make that promise in front of friends and family and oftentimes before God if they are uh, believers. Uh, But this is not just seen in divorce, right? I mean, uh, parents betray children. Politicians betray constituents. Friends betray friends. This is a ubiquitous human problem. And again, here is where the root of the problem is that, that the human heart is sick with sin. It's sick with sin. Um, What bubbles out naturally of the human heart, uh, again, is not fear of God and love for God and obedience to God and worship and service of God. What comes out is the desire to serve self and rebel against God and be unloving toward others. This is what sort of the natural thing that, that bubbles out. And again, we, we've got to deal with the root cause. Um, you can think about a, a natural physical heart attack. Uh, there's symptoms that come from that, right? There's pain down your arm, sometimes in your jaw. Um, there's shortness of breath, extreme fatigue. Uh, there is nausea sometimes, and you might think about what, what if you were just treating this, those symptoms in a heart attack victim, right? There's pain down the arm, and you think, go get an ice pack, put it on the person's arm. We'll, we'll try to make the pain go away in your arm, or, or, or possibly they're having shortness of breath and fatigue, and you say, well, maybe if you took a nap, maybe that would help your shortness of breath and your fatigue, and you'd feel better. Or their nausea, you, you know, you're like, here's some Pepto-Bismol, like, like, take this, this will probably, this will help. No, that's not going to solve these symptoms. So that what's going to help is, is that the heart is going to be dealt with, either through some sort of uh, medical intervention, maybe surgery, maybe some, kinds, uh, some kind of a drug. Now, it's the same with spiritual life, right? We, we, we can try to, to deal with, say, a lack of the fear of God in our hearts by trying to Scare the person into being fearful of God, right? You see this a little bit at Sinai, right? Mount Sinai, it's like a cloud coming down and lightning and and thunder, and and evidently that didn't work to change the hearts of Israel because 40 days later they're worshiping a golden calf, or perhaps. Uh, we want to deal with with an apathy toward God or even a hatred toward God. And we might think, well, maybe if we just reflect on the goodness of God, we just think about how good God is, that'll help us to stop being apathetic. And and that that could be helpful. And you see Moses doing that in actually the book of Deuteronomy. He said, look look at the good that God's done. Look at the exodus. Look at how he got you out of there and saved you from Pharaoh. But it still wasn't enough. It it, it didn't fix the root problem. It, It just dealt with, some of the symptoms. So we need a remedy. We need a remedy for that root. And the remedy, Moses tells us right here, this is an amazing verse. It's, a, it's just a real short little verse, but man, it, it it speaks volumes at this point. Just think, 10 chapters into this sermon, all this stuff about covenant, and you need to fear and love God, and God loves you, and hear the expectations. And then in, in verse 16 of chapter 10, he says this, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. Now that may seem like a strange treatment. If you know what circumcision is, right, it's typically the, the cutting off of a piece of skin off the male penis, right? Like, like what are you talking about, Moses? Now this was given to Abraham as a sign of the covenant community, right? So every baby boy at day eight was circumcised as a way to mark the community apart from other nations, right? And so here he's saying, circumcise your heart, right? Your your spiritual heart. Now, what is he talking about? Now, thankfully, the Apostle Paul, who was Jewish scholar par excellence, right, he tells us what Moses is talking about. And so we can read in places like Romans 3, or or Romans 2, excuse me, uh, verse 28. Paul writes this: For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So Paul reveals... Here's what Moses was talking about. A day that will come when when God Himself would transform hearts, would change hearts. And there he says it's by the Spirit. It's not by the letter, right? He's saying it's not by the law that the code doesn't cure. The law code will not cure the human heart. It's going to take some divine intervention by the work of the Spirit. In Colossians 2.11, he speaks of this idea again in Him. Also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here he calls it the circumcision of Christ. And he's, he's, he's saying this circumcision, this spiritual circumcision that happens in your heart, it's a spiritual circumcision. And it's made possible by what Christ does on the cross, being applied by the power of the Spirit. And what it does, it, 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 he says it separates cuts off the flesh. Now when he's talking about flesh, he's not talking about physical flesh. He's talking about the indwelling sin that we have as as fallen human beings. And he's saying this is the way that the heart can be cured is by the grace of the gospel in Christ through the power of the spirit. The code doesn't cure. It requires uh, Christ. So, we don't like surgery. No one's like woohoo. Let's go get some surgery, right? It's cutting, it's bleeding, it's wounding, but it's healing. It's healing, is it not? Uh, we can't do surgery on ourselves. And I know there's some movies out there where people like to do surgery on themselves, but I, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <laughs> I tried it. I literally, I tried it, like I was, uh, this was when we, we first purchased this building, and it was more of a wreck than it is right now, and, and I was over here working on a little window outside the prayer room there, and, and I was trying to, to, to take out a piece of rotten board, and I had a a, a a hammer, and I was hammering on a crowbar, and as I'm hitting it, shards of, of of like iron are coming out of the crowbar, and it flies into my ear, and so I have like shrapnel in my ear, and so, you know. What do you do? You go home, you get a razor blade, and you try to get it out. So I'm digging in there, and I'm trying to get it out, and it's not going well. And I eventually realize I need to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor, and and he's like looking at my ear. He's like, What happened? (laughs) I'm like, well, this thing happened with the iron, and then I went home and I tried to get it at myself, and he's just laughing. He was just laughing his head out. I can't believe you did that. Oh my gosh! And so anyway, the story gets longer, and and I won't go into any more of the de- the gory details. Um, but you can't do surgery on yourself, okay? <laughs> and this is true spiritually as well. You cannot circumcise your heart. Right? You, you you can't through the following of a law code or the participation in a ritual, being moral, ethical, whatever. Like, you, you can't change your heart. It's got to be done by a spiritual surgeon. Right? You, again, listen to Colossians two eleven through 14 Listen, listen to how Paul describes this. He, again, the verse I just read, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him." He describes what happens when someone has their heart circumcised by Christ and the power of the Spirit. They were once spiritually dead. He says you were dead in your trespasses, right? You, you were in spiritual cardiac arrest, but through faith in what Christ did for you, right? Like that he was buried, that, that he, he died, and was buried, and was resurrected, that you then are buried with him and, 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 and are then resurrected because of the gospel, right? You are, are made alive. Your heart is changed and transformed. He does that by canceling the debt that you owed because of your sin. And, and, he, and He brings about a, a transformation uh, of, of your heart. So not only are you forgiven of, of the sins you've committed, the sinful condition that you have, but also you're given a, a transformation. And so now, because of God's grace and the power of His Spirit, you can actually fear and love God from your heart. And what can bubble out of your heart is actually obedience to God's commands and, and service to, to, to God and others. And it's because of the grace of the spiritual surgery that God can do in Christ. So, the root, the remedy. What's the result, though? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hinting at what the result is. An ability to fear God and love God and to, to obey His commands and, and to serve Him. But listen, listen to what, how Moses describes the resulting community of those who have circumcised hearts in verses 17 through 22. So, I'm going to read this section and then... Just talk in general about it. So it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. This is a beautiful description of the new community that God is raising up in the nation of Israel. We might think of it in in, in this way in a summary kind of fashion, there's an up component to that new community. There's an in component, and there's an out component. You hear us talk about this every week in, in announcements, right? Worship, connect, and serve. That, that's what we're talking We want our community to be this up and this in and this out kind of a community. We'll, we'll, this is always what God has wanted in the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God. So they are an up people. They are a vertical people, right, meaning they're a God-centered people. You can hear it in these verses, especially 17, 20, and 21, God of gods, Lord of lords, He's great, He's mighty, He's awesome, He's incorruptible, right? That's what they mean when they say He won't take a bribe, He's not in the pocket of the rich, He's not in the pocket of the powerful, He cannot be corrupted. We are to fear Him, we're to serve Him, we're to hold fast to Him, we are to praise Him, we are to consider Him as our God, we are to remember all that He has done. All of that are threads in in those few verses. We are a vertical people. I hope you sense that as you come to worship in this place, that that, that, that the hero of every sermon is God, that that the hero of every, every song that we sing, it's God. It's a God-centeredness to our community. And so this is what he wanted in, in the Old Testament people of God. This is what he wants in the New Testament people of God, that we would be a vertical people. But there's also an in component, right? That God's creating a, a people, a community, right? He says to, to, to Israel, you, you went to, to Egypt, you were just 70 people. Now look at you. You're as numerous as the stars, in the heaven. God's always about making a people for himself from from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, he he talks to Adam and Eve. What are they supposed to do? What are their commandments? Multiply. right? I I want some people. I want a people for myself. He tells Noah, multiply, Noah. Come on, let's multiply. I want a people for myself. He says to Abraham, I'm going to take your family. I'm going to start with you. And and out of your family, you're going to multiply. And I'm going to have a people. I'm going to have a nation. And now here, the nation is there. Moses is leading this nation into the promised land, and they are a people. There's a communal aspect to uh, the people of God. So not only a vertical, but communal. Now, notice how the community functions. They really take care of one another well. And the way you know that they're taking care of one another well is that they're taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. And that's the widows and the orphans right? These are folks that are extremely vulnerable, and and they don't have a means of caring for themselves. And and God is saying, you make sure you take care of the widows and orphans. And I'm assuming those widows and orphans, they're they're Israelites. They're part of the nation of Israel. And so if if, if you're a healthy community, if if, if you understand fully the vertical relationship, you are going to be taking care of people, all people. And yes, a lot of that will be sort of a mutual caring for one another, where you care for for somebody and then they care back for you and it's it 's not like they're paying you back but the, but that's the, the church in general works like that we 're mutually caring for it. we have needs, uh, all of us, and we have things to bring to the table to give uh, but but it, it, you know that that the community is working well when they're reaching out to and loving those who cannot care for themselves, and so the this people of God is to be. Uh, communal, but it's also to be missional. So not only is it vertical and communal, but it's missional. has an out component to it. So when he says in verse 18, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. They're, they're, They're not only executing... Uh, social justice for those that are inside of Israel—they're uh, giving social justice to those who are outside of Israel. And a sojourner—the word we might use—is like an immigrant, right? They're from another country, they're from another people group, and and and, and here they are—they're inside Israel. And, and I want you to see that because when you're looking at the annihilation of the Canaanites, you start to think. Oh, the, the, there's, this is like sort of a, 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 a you know Israelite supremacists that are coming in here, and, and 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 they're just hating and killing everyone that's outside of there. But that's not what's happening, right? They're having to, because things are so bad in in humanity, to set up a new nation and to sort of wipe out folks in a particular geographic location. But once they get established, they have a missional component. They have an outward-looking component. And so they're caring for the sojourners, right? These folks that that are from the outside that have come in to live uh, among them. And they're not just to care for them, they're to love them. Think about that. He's commanding them not just to, 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 get, to pity them, sort of to, to give alms to the poor. Say, I want you to love them. And partly because as they're being loved, they are being swept up in the vertical worship life of Israel. And as you read through of some of the descriptions of what uh, that they're supposed to do with sojourners is that they're, they're, they're celebrating Passover with the sojourner. They're inviting them into their story. They're inviting them into the the story of God. Uh, They are to give the sojourner a Sabbath. They're supposed to let them rest and worship. And so they're sweeping them up into the vertical relationship of of Israel, both uh, those that are a part of Israel, that are in their their communal kind of life, but but then there's also this missional, outward-looking life. This is an amazing vision of social justice especially in the ancient world. Everyone in the ancient world is ethnocentric. Everyone in the ancient world only cares about their people. And partly it's because of their understanding of their God, because their God is ethnocentric too. The ancient gods were attached to a particular people in a particular geographic location, and so they really didn't care about anybody else outside their location. So this vision in the context of the ancient world, it's stunning what God is saying to his people to not just care for the sojourners, but to actually love the sojourners. He does not want them to be Jewish supremacists, right? This is not what he's establishing in the Holy Land. So, Evidently, they're being told and commanded these things because they will be tempted to become supremacists. And we've heard a lot about supremacists in the, in the last few months, uh, namely white supremacists that have been in the news and have been uh, protesting and, and, and saying all kinds of horrible things uh, against people of uh, other races. And you think through that, you think, well, what if we could give, do a spiritual autopsy on a white supremacist? What would we find if, if, we, if we opened up the spiritual chest, so to speak, and we, we're doing an autopsy on the heart, and in the, the first layer we'd see hate. And we kind of smell the putrid smell of that hate. But a, a, as, we, as, we, as we move down a couple more layers and we cut a little deeper, uh, we would see self-interest. Right? We, would, we would see a, a, a prioritizing of interest, of self and of a particular people group, and that that self-interest is defining them as a person. It's defining them as a, as a community. Uh, Arthur Kemp, in his book, March of the Titans, A History of the White Race, says this racial identity can be defined as the conscious recognition that one belongs to a specific race, ethnicity, or culture, and with that comes certain obligations toward their own welfare that what's underneath that hate, that racism, is self-interest. Now, if we cut a little deeper, we go up under there, another layer, what we're going to find is atheism, at least functional atheism. Now, they may give lip service to some kind of a god and some kind of a faith, but what you have is a functional atheism. This is, this is what I mean. What, what you hear and what they say and the things they chant is there's an entitlement, right? They're entitled to more. They're not getting a fair shake. They're saying immigrants are stealing our jobs, right? That they, they feel like they're entitled to particular jobs, and, and, and those are, are being taken uh, from them now. Now think about this. What what they're saying is, is that there is not a God who is good and powerful and can actually uh, provide what's needed. That that they have to scratch and to control and to manipulate to try to get what they're entitled to. There's also fear, right? You hear that in the chant. You will not replace us, right? I, now I've got bad news for them. Uh, only one-seventh of the planet is white, so I think we've already been replaced, okay? But that's a whole, whole other uh, issue. Um, but what they're saying, right, is, is that they're fearful that what they have is going to be taken away, that again, there's not a loving God who can be trusted, who uh, can be uh, abundant enough to make sure that all races have everything that they need. Right? That, that there's some sort of a scarcity of resources and, and they have to, again, scratch and claw and get what they are fearful of losing. They don't have a vertical, right? or at least not an appropriate vertical. And so it, it, what's happening is you see it playing itself out in the way they look at the world outside of their little people group. Now, Israel will be tempted to do this Now think about it. They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They've been wandering around in the desert for 40 years. They have taken over the promised land at risk to themselves and their families. They have gone against some really, really scary people. And and they've been able to get that land and grasp it, right? And now the temptation would be to be entitled to that land and to be fearful that that land is going to be taken away from them and God will have none of it. He will have none of it. He will not allow them to feel entitled or to be fearful that what they have is going to be taken away from them. What He wants them to be thinking in their hearts as they live in this vertical relationship with God is that everything they have has been received as a gracious gift from God. You you, you hear that in, in places like Deuteronomy 8, where he says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. He's like, don't you think that that, that your hard work and that you're, you're somehow entitled to what you have. But the second thing he wants them to, to understand is that if they've received from a generous God, that they should then in his name be generous to others, right? Places like Deuteronomy fifteen seven. later on in the book, he'll say, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not... Harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. And we know that that included also the sojourner. So if you have received freely from a generous God, then give abundantly to those who are in need, both those in the community of Israel and those outside the community of Israel. But again, as human beings, we will never naturally think that way. We have to have a circumcision of the heart. What bubbles out of us naturally is self-interest. It it is not to worship and praise and thank a generous God and to express that then by being generous to other people. We need a spiritual heart surgery. You can hear Martin Luther King Uh, Holding these things in tension, as he gives a speech to students at Western Michigan College, he says this, Certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Religion and education must play a great role in the changing of the heart. But we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And You hear him holding these things in, in tension while, while he, he, he's saying, absolutely, we need to stand against oppression. And we need to stand for those who are vulnerable to that Oppression. And that will restrain the heartless, and it needs to happen. But we also hold out the remedy that can actually change the heart of the hater. We hold out the remedy that can actually change the heart of those who've been hurt by hate. And if that circumcision of the heart occurs, it will be a solution in the final sense. Brothers and sisters, you, you have this remedy. And many of you are in social justice conversations out in the world on your campus, and you, you have the ability both to restrain the heartless, but also to bring a remedy for the heart of the hater and the heart of those hurt by hate. This is good news, is it not? This gospel... That, that is such good news. It can bring transformation in any heart. And this is what we have, church. This is what we have to offer. And it is not just good news. It is the best news. And church, you, you can demonstrate this, this generosity to those who are in need, right? Uh the argument that is often used, which I think is a solid argument, right, it, to, to care for immigrants in our country is to remind ourselves that most of us come from immigrants in our country. I mean, if you're not Native American, you came from immigrants. And so the, the, there's, there's a plea to remember your immigrant story. Uh, we might say from Deuteronomy 10, remember your sojourner story, And as as Christians, we remember our sojourner story. We remember that every time we come to this table. This is is to to trigger us to think about our sojourner story, to to remember that, that we were sojourners, that, that we were absolutely desperate. We, we had no way of fixing ourselves, of changing our hearts, and we went to God, and, and God, who is the one who can actually be a supremacist, okay? He is supreme over all. And here's what He does with His supremacy, right? This is what Christ does on the night on which He's being betrayed by His own creation. What does He do? He takes bread, He breaks it. He gives it to his disciples, says, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The one who is worthy of all praise offers himself to sojourners like you and me that are absolutely desperate. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed the cup and thanked God for the cup, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He reminds him that he's not just saving individuals, he's saving a covenant community. Sojourners who who have have come to God desperate for grace and opened up the hand of faith and received that forgiveness and that new life and now live in community with each other where where they're giving of of, of their generosity because they've been given generously from a generous God. But not only that, that generosity overflowing into the world. That, that's who we get to be, church. And it may be this morning that you want to be a part of that. You want to be in right relationship, in your vertical relationship with God. You want to be in a right relationship in this covenant community. And I'm telling you, you can't do that unless you get some spiritual heart surgery this morning. And to cry out to God and ask Him to to change your heart, to circumcise your heart, to forgive you of your sins and that you believe that it is by His death on the cross that that is possible. And to receive that by faith and to enter in to this community that is on a mission. For the rest of us that know that we've come to faith in Christ, we know what it's like to be that beggar in need of grace, let's remember our sojourner story. This is what we're doing when we come up to this table. And it, and, it, and it should humble us, and it should empower us, right? To humbly stand for those who are vulnerable, to stand against those who are oppressing. But we do it, we do it humbly because we, we know that in our heart of hearts, without Jesus, we would be self-supremacists. But by God's grace and the power of the Spirit, He makes... Our heart, new, and that comes from the gospel, amen. And so, as we receive this, I, I, I encourage you to come up with your hand open, just to receive it from the person giving it. Part of, partly that is so you won't put your hand. Everyone putting their hand in the in the plate, okay, which is you know just adding bacteria to the plate. So we don't want that. Uh, the folks that are giving it, they they are they have. Uh, use some hand sanitizer, and, and so they're prepared, you know, to, to give you uh, some healthy pieces of bread. Uh, but, but it's also, there's some significance there, some symbolism as, as you open up your hand to receive it, right? Remembering your sojourner story. Remember your desperation before God and that you continue to be desperate before God as He gives you um, grace and mercy uh, by grace through faith. So let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. You're such a good and loving God, and that is so amazing because you're also the one who is above heaven and above the heavens that is, are above heaven. I mean, you, you're, you, you, there shouldn't be any way imaginable that you would, uh, would humble yourself and serve us and love us and die on, in our place, God. But, but you have, so God, let that just sink into our minds, but also our hearts that we would, we would love you, that we would fear you, that we would serve you, that we uh, would, would be willing uh, to obey your commands and to do so from the inside out. Lord, thank you for the, the cup. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for these things that you've given us to remember uh, by. Thank you for this covenant community that you've created, the local church. And we just pray your blessing over this time. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.